Uh, it's entirely my fault that uh, my, my title isn't on the programme. I, I forgot to uh, send, send, send it to Dan. Uh, well, my working title was something like Egyptian Athena, African Egypt, Egyptian Africa, question mark. Or an alternative, half flippant title was Bernalism in current African historical thought. Black Athena's first volume, as you all know, consists mainly of an extended historiographical discussion, placing its author's arguments within and against a complex history of European intellectual engagement with ancient Greece. Some relatively small part of the intense ensuing debates has attended to, indeed sometimes protested at, Black Athena's apparent lack of close interest in Egypt in its own right, let alone other parts of Africa, as opposed to its possible influence on Greece, though the third volume does indeed partly uh, shift that. However, discussion of this aspect of Black Athena's own intellectual genealogies and affiliations has focused largely, often highly polemically, on the relationship between Bernal's project and that of the African diasporic, mainly US-based, vindicationist and romantic Afrocentric tradition. Remarkably little interest has been shown in <clears throat> Black Athena's relation to past or present intellectual currents within sub-Saharan Africa itself, even those that might aptly be called Egyptocentric. What I want to do this evening is a tentative attempt to explore some such connections. It looks at three of these, seeking briefly to trace their interconnections. The parallels and divergences between Bernal's work and influence and those of Senegalese historian Sheikh Abdel Diop and his followers. The ideas and rhetorics of African Renaissance, as espoused especially in Tabu Mbeki's South Africa. And most substantively, the use made of Egyptian myths of origin by certain contemporary African and Africanist intellectuals. I'll say a little bit in particular about four of these. The Dutch anthropologist and philosopher Wim van Binsbergen, the multidisciplinary Ugandan scholar and activist Dani Nabudere, the Congo Brazzaville born linguist historian Teofi Obenga, and the later work of Ghanaian novelist Aikwe Arma. I should perhaps note in advance, in relation to all four, that aspects of their work include subjects on which I have no professional expertise whatever, and that three of them actually have, among more important things, directed some sharp negative critique at things I've written, just on the faint off chance that anyone might suspect that influences my views of them. I thought I should mention it. <laughs> um, also, I might add, a touch embarrassed that all my dramatis personae are male. I considered trying to say a bit, for instance, about Ifi Amadume, uh, but feel that her work is neither as closely relevant to our main themes, nor as influential as those I do discuss. In his inaugural lecture for the South African Parliamentary Millennium Project, President Thabo Mbeki invoked Martin Bernal's name in pursuit of the vision of an African Renaissance 
which he had first adumbrated several years earlier. This was far from the only occasion on which Mbeki gave Bernal a central place in major speeches. And I'm already not the first in my turn to quote Mbeki, though uh, somebody in a previous session was quoting from other speeches of his. He recalled passionately the past <coughs> systematic distortions of African history and of the place of Africans in the historical scheme of things. Thus, he proclaimed, began a distortion of who was responsible for one of the greatest civilizations in human history, the Egyptian, which left a permanent mark on all subsequent civilizations. The outstanding scholar, I'm still quoting from Becky, Martin Bernal, addressed this issue in his seminal work, Black Athena. He wrote about how European scholarship sought to deny the fact reflected in ancient Greek texts that the Greeks had learnt much of what constituted Greek civilization directly from the Egyptians. I take it for granted, Mbeki went on, that all of us know the irrefutable fact that the Egyptians who built that great civilization were black with kinky hair. He's quoting uh, Herodotus there, primarily. Uh, blacks invented the art of writing in the form of Egyptian hieroglyphics. And Becky proceeded with a substantial list of Egyptian achievements and said that they then imparted their vast knowledge to the Greeks. Plato, then a long list of Greek names, uh, whose work reflected the great and pervasive influence of the black Africans. For Mbeki, all this had, of course, a contemporary urgency. I'll quote a little further. It is in this context that Africa's quest for renewal and the affirmation of our culture, heritage, and identity need to be understood. This mammoth task confronts us not as a desire to provide a romanticized view of Africa's past, but as a responsibility to achieve the shared future. This cannot be achieved as long as we defer to our former colonizers the important matters that affect our countries and people. We would not achieve true liberation as long as we do things merely to be in the good books of those who are powerful. We have to contend with the reality that those in the countries that sought to deny the fact that the Egyptian civilization was African, the countries that asserted that Africa has no history outside its subjugation by Europe, the countries that viewed it as their natural right to enrich themselves at the expense of Africa. These powerful voices, concluded, are arguing today for the denial of our right to self-determination. Mbeki here built on a substantial tradition of linking the idea of African Renaissance with claims about ancient Egypt. Pixley Semi, in the 1905 speech, which is often seen as the first ever exposition of a Renaissance rhetoric, also made reference to the glories of Egypt. Sheikh Diop later had set out the desired connection between ancient past and future prospects with unusual force. To quote Diop, the return to Egypt in all domains is the necessary condition for reconciling African civilizations with history. 
in order to be able to construct a body of modern human sciences in order to renovate African culture. Far from being revel a reveling in the past, a look towards the Egypt of antiquity is the best way to build our cultural future. All this gives some indication of how important one might call what one might call Bernalian themes, and indeed Martin Bernal's work itself, has been to some in Africa. Though Mbeki was criticized in certain quarters for invoking Bernal's and Basil Davidson's names, but not Diop's. Yet the whole Black Athena debate, which began with the first volume's publication over 20 years ago now, included very little reference to sub-Saharan Africa, or indeed anywhere outside the Nile Valley. In Bernal's work, major volumes so far, there are, of course, references to Egypt's Africanness, a few to blackness, and subsequent critics have worked over these repeatedly and sometimes vehemently, <clears throat> and to historians of and polemicists about Africa. These last are sometimes to unnamed and collectivized Afrocentrists, and in fewer, even fewer cases, to named individuals, most notably Diop and George G.M. James, the latter indeed more than the former, and in ways which, in my own view, make a mistake in implicitly equating the two. Wrong in my view, since James was an idiosyncratic, quite unscholarly amateur writer, whilst Diop, although many criticisms can be and have been mounted of his work, and although some of his main themes, his use of linguistic evidence and of physical anthropology, his two cradles theory, have been rejected by most specialists. He was nonetheless a major and pioneering scholar. It is frankly a little disappointing that Bernal alludes to him so little and in such uninformative ways, though I'm keenly aware of the ungenerosity of such criticism given the extraordinary range of materials and sources that Martin Bernal's work does refer to. Even in the places where, subsequently, Bernal has engaged somewhat more closely with Africanists, as in his contributions to Talanta and to the 2003 volume Ancient Egypt in Africa, and indeed in passages in Black Athena volume 3, some of these omissions recur. In 1987, discussing the first volume, Basil Davidson expressed disappointment that, quote, valiantly toppling the Aryan model for Europe, this sympathetic writer has not yet had time to notice that its counterpart in Africa has meanwhile bitten the dust. This, I think, would be only a little less true two decades later. But much the same, or worse, can be said of Bernal's best-known critics. Mary Lefkowitz and almost all those collected in her and Guy Rogers' massive volume of negative critique are considerably less interested in Africa as such than Bernal appears to be. In that volume, only Robert Poulter, in the course of an att attack on Bernal's use of the history of science, makes substantive reference to Diop, while almost literally not a single other writer, either from or about sub-Saharan Africa, is so much as mentioned in those pages. 
And the pattern is somewhat re repeated, perhaps more understandably, in Bernal's own voluminous replies to his critics. The bright side, I think, on the whole, is that those exchanges between Bernal and the critics which have again engaged at all with Africa have, I think, mostly been rather better tempered and more courteous uh, than many of those involving classicists have been. I'd be curious to know if Martin concurs with that view about relative good manners amongst Egyptologists and Africanists. <laughs> 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 Jacques Berlinablau's Heresy in the University includes rather more discussion of Diop and a few other writers on Africa, but only in the context of a mainly North American vindicationist tradition, not in relation to African studies. This being naturally in line with Berlinablau's own main avowed purpose, uh, which is to see black Athena and the controversies evoked very much as American events, significant for what they say about American intellectual and academic culture, most especially the roles of blacks and Jews in these. Clarence Walker's You Can't Go Home Again is very similar in being all about Africa, mainly Egypt, in the mind of America. And although Walker castigates Afrocentrists for their lack of interest in the continent itself, he seems actually to share that indifference. His few direct allusions to Africa as such, a very broad brush, sometimes inaccurate. Makan Kaita's Race and the Writing of History and the numerous associated essays have the same focus, overwhelmingly a North American one, the main difference being his far greater sympathy for Afrocentric and vindicationist traditions than those I previously mentioned. And although Kaita has clearly read and knows far more African history than any of those just cited, he gives it little direct attention, while Diop is once more seen mainly through the eyes of his Anglophone admirers, interpreters, and translators. Kaita indeed comes close to seeing Bernal as merely copying Diop and William Leo Hansbury, a view which naturally I think unfair, though I do concur uh, in regretting Bernal's neglect of people like Hansbury, another, I think, uh, under-acknowledged pioneer, this time within uh, the United States. I trust it's unnecessary here to introduce further the Senegalese historian Sheikh Antidiop, or sketch the major themes of his work. If Bernal, starting in the 1980s, is the great and controversial pioneer of rethinking the relations between Egypt and Greece, then Diop, from the early 50s onwards, was no less a pioneer, yet no le less embattled, in his views on how pharaonic Egypt related to the rest of Africa. Yet, here, I can't resist echoing the rather mischievous title Yaakov Shavit has given to his paper for this conference. Will Black Athena be a huge half-forgotten hulk in the river of 20th century historical writing. For Diop's work, certainly seems sometimes a little like that. Not, of course, half-forgotten in the sense that it is not referred to, indeed invoked with reverence in some quarters, but rather in the sad lack of really productive intellectual descendants from it. What I suggested a decade ago seems to me still broadly true. Indeed, perhaps more so than ever. 
that subsequent Diopian historical writing, especially in English, the situation has been a little more healthy in French, has, with very few exceptions, at best merely repeated his ideas, at worst vulgarized and distorted them, even pressed them into the service of a romantic and racialized worldview, which is far indeed from Diop's own. For long, among the most interesting and best known of those few exceptions was Teofilo Benga. He was born in Brazzaville in 1930 and has mingled an academic career with intense political involvement. He was the ex-French Congo's foreign minister for some years in the 70s. Latterly, he has taught in the USA, first in Molefia's auntie's uh, Temple University department, the academic heart, one might say, of US Afro Afrocentrism, then at San Francisco State University. His work has included poetry as well as numerous historical and political books centered on historical linguistics and the philosophy of pharaonic Egypt, but also some very wide-ranging, indeed global, historiographical arguments. Sadly, I think the latter, perhaps his most in interesting book, is also the least translated into English. Some of those earlier works are conceded by even the sharpest critics to be of substantial intellectual weight and to be somewhat less sweepingly polemical, more cautious in much especially of their linguistic argument than those of Abengo's mentor, Diop. Many of the core conceptions are universalist rather than African nationalist. Obenga's Pour une nouvelle histoire, 1980, spoke of all human groups contributing to a universal cultural inheritance, while a lost tradition, 95, though mainly devoted to Diopian assertions about African cultural unity, sought to place these in an ecumenically global context. The heroes of Une Nouvelle Histoire are drawn from all over the world, including many European historians and with pride of place given to Vico. This is not, in the narrow sense, an Afrocentric work, but aspires to be a truly global one. <clears throat> the same might be said of much else in Abenga's earlier writing. His huge compendium of commentaries on Diop, both his own and those collected from others, seeks to place the latter in genuinely worldwide, not just African intellectual contexts. He also extended substantially on Diop in his far-reaching discussion of ideas of a single ancestral African language and of African writing systems. Yet the key founding assumption, both then and in more recent efforts, has remained that from ancient Egypt's impact on the culture of the rest of the African continent to the unity of all African languages, African history is one continuous, unbroken narrative of a people with a shared consciousness. He has also, in both early and more recent work, offered, I think, a fuller discussion of ancient Egyptian belief systems and their alleged relationships with those of sub-Saharan Africa than any American Afrocentrist or even Diop himself had done. Abenga's writing um, 
perhaps especially a book first published in 1990, uh, translated into English as African Philosophy During the Period of the Pharaohs in 2004. Unlike almost all else which has argued for the contemporary importance and relevance of ancient Egyptian thought, actually attempts to give an account of the content of that philosophical system. It seems to me a pity, then, that more recently, Abenga has appeared to retreat into a more constricted and partisan worldview, as evidenced especially in his ferociously polemical, indeed abusive, 2001 book, Sens de la lutte contre l'Africanisme Eurocentriste. Abenga devotes the entire book to a repetitive denunciation of another book, the volume Afrocentrism, edited by François-Xavier Fauvelamar and others, which had appeared just before. He calls all its editors and contributors racists, but reserves the most unforgivable abuse for Jean-Pierre Chrétien, uh, the major historian of the Great Lakes region of Africa, who is accused not only of hatred, bad faith, and so on, but unsubtly insinuated to bear responsibility for the Rwandan genocide because of his supposed championing of the idea of primordial Hutu and Tutsi identities. If anything, worse is Abenga's labeling of a whole series of African and diasporic intellectuals, some of them speaking at this conference, as Sambo, Kwashi, and Molek, mentally enslaved, self-hating acolytes of Eurocentric ideology. It had, I think, been rare hitherto for relevant intellectual debate in the Francophone world to descend to the level of abusiveness and of racialized ad hominem invective sometimes apparent in debates over Afrocentrism in the Anglophone Atlantic world. And it's tempting, though naturally speculative, to see Abenga's long latter-day immersion in American Afrocentric circles as responsible for what I see as a decline in both the tone and the quality of his writing. More substantively, Abenga has latterly renewed his insistence on the immense value of recovering the ancient roots of a unitary African thought system for the 21st century project of Renaissance. Thus, at uh, a major conference in Dakar, organized by the African Union, the end of 2004, Abenga, in a keynote address, urged the need for Africans to replenish their own cultural heritage and value systems, to do so via the African cultural paradigm of pharaonic Egypt, and thus to recognize, quote, the cultural inferiority and fragility of the Western paradigm as against the superior wisdom of the pharaonic inheritance. Dani Wadada Mabudri has recently pressed a very similar case. But if Abenga's Egyptocentric Renaissance rhetoric is fully of a piece with his long previous intellectual career, only perhaps now somewhat radicalized, for Mabudri, it marks a dramatic break from previous convictions. Born in Uganda in 1932, he initially trained in the law, was qualified as a barrister in London. 
persecuted by first the first first Aboti, by both sorry the first Aboti regime and the Amin dictatorship for his political activities. He went into exile in Tanzania, taught law at Dar es Salaam, but also pursued intensely, impressively transdisciplinary ambitions there. He published major books on theories of imperialism and on Ugandan politics, and was a key participant in the vigorous, not to say ferocious, 1970s Dar es Salaam debates on state, class, and imperialism. After briefly serving as a minister in post-Amin Ugandan governments, he again went into exile, working for various NGOs, and latterly as executive director of an independent Africa study center at Mbali in Uganda. Significantly, it's Africa with a K title. Nabudu's earlier writings had been notable for their strict and orthodox, indeed I would say rather rigid and dogmatic, Marxism-Leninism. Strongly materialist, intensely present-minded, with a twin focus on the specifically Ugandan scene and on the global capitalist system, they showed no apparent interest in the ancient past or ideas of a pan-continental African personality or unitary primordial cultural inheritance. Since the late 1990s, all that has changed radically. Nabudari today espouses a pan-Africanist post-traditionalism, as he calls it, which claims inspiration from Diop and indeed from Banal, to whom Nabudari refers extensively, and from ancient Egypt. Publishing often now in the International Journal of African Renaissance Studies and under the auspices of the Renaissance Institute, he lords, quote, culture and spirituality based on African religions and a new paradigm which will be informed by the dethroning of the Eurocentric worldview. This approach, Nabudari goes on, implies the adoption of a new research agenda, which can be part of the process of building the new paradigm. This should constitute the basis of an African Renaissance. This is a reclaiming of the African cultural heritage which colonialism sought to annihilate. African intellectuals must reconstitute their societies holistically from colonial and post-colonial constructions. And this cannot be done without discovering the basis of these societies in the study of African civilizations. Only when Africa has rediscovered itself in this way can it then tackle the other problems which can fit it in the 21st century. That rediscovery, Nabudere argues, depends on properly valuing Africa's past and its great civilization, quote, restoring the old wisdom of Africa, by which he means, again, above all that of Egypt. Nabudere Nardas urges the development of, quote, a science of Afroecology, Afroecology with a K, as opposed, say, to Malefia's Antis, Afroecology with a C, based on the cosmogenies of Thothology, the ancient Egyptian god, uh, legendary physician. Afroecology, he says, draws its scientificity and uniqueness from the fact that it's based on an all-embracing philosophy of humankind originating in Egypt. It is based on a philosophy that is conscious of itself and which, although originally based in myth, 
was able to separate itself from myth to concept within its own development. It should be noted that Nabudera's post-traditionalism does not involve the kind of enthusiasm for revived sacred monarchy and other forms of authoritarianism which has marked some otherwise similar intellectual endeavors, perhaps especially in Afro-America. He insists that it can and must be fully compatible with democracy and egalitarianism. So too does the third thinker I wish to highlight, Ghanaian novelist and social critic, I.E. Kwe Ama. Born in 1939, Ama attended the elite Achimota College, then Groton School, Harvard, and a little later Columbia in the USA. As we'll see, reaction against the neo-colonial education at those places has been an abiding preoccupation of his. He turned to full-time writing only after his hopes to enlist as a frontline soldier in anti-colonial revolution were thwarted. Strong autobiographical elements have infused many of his novels, and his most recent book, The Eloquence of the Scribes, from 2006, so we want to get my attention, sorry, no, no. combines personal memoir with a sweeping vision of Africa's past and future. The first three novels, brilliantly analyzed by Neil Lazarus of this university, and I feel, hope you share my sorrow that Neil can't be with us and the worrying personal circumstances, family reasons why he can't be, all have present day settings and all centre around the struggle between the corruption, materialism and oppression of newly independent neo-colonial Africa on the one hand and their heroes fight for personal integrity and collective liberation on the other. Their moving spirit is best described, I think, as Fanonian. Latterly, we might say that Diop has supplanted, without entirely effacing Fanon as Armar's great guide. In 2000 Seasons, in 73, he gives us an epic allegorical picture of African history and of millennial struggles against both Arab Muslim and European invaders. The healers from 79 centered on the fall of the Azante Empire and pursues a similar vision with the titular healers being the bearers of traditional wisdom who keep the flame of true emancipatory knowledge alive amidst colonial and post-colonial tyranny and anomaly. <clears throat> that same idea of hidden ancient knowledge coming to rescue Africa from the torments of the present activates both Armagh's subsequent much later novels, Osiris Rising from 95 and Kemet 2002, as well as the more recent non-fiction Eloquence of the Scribes. Part of what has changed in the interim is that in these more recent works, that ancient knowledge is identified as specifically Egyptian. In the healers and more clearly in 2000 seasons, there are some rather oblique hints notably in the long passages of invocation at the start of the latter novel, at the idea of a continent-wide African cultural unity, as well as of age-old shared ancestry and ideas of long-distance transcontinental travel involving deserts, but not yet 
a specific allusion to Egypt. Also, in both these earlier novels, there is the central idea which is repeated and developed in Osiris and Kemet, of healing and liberatory knowledge kept secret and passed down across centuries and even millennia. Only in the later two novels, though, is this identified specifically as ancient Egyptian. Kemet, says Amar, is a novel structured on an epistemic premise, that it is possible to envision Africa's multi-millennial history as one coherent continental narrative, embracing all our space and time. The protagonists articulating that vision form a corpus of intellectuals whose destiny it has been to preserve Africa's consciousness and whose fate it has also been, century after century, to betray the continent's most ancient values in the interests of personal survival. These are the scribes of ancient Egypt, the griots of the medieval empires, and the academic scholars of the age of structural adjustment. What those ancient values are, why they got suppressed, in what form they, they survived, whether future generations can revitalize them. These are the issues addressed." Close quote. So far, one might say, so very Diopian, and even at a slightly further remove, so banalian. The classroom scenes in the early chapters of Kemet, in a thinly disguised Achimota college called the Abattoir of Mines, are purely and directly Bernal versus the Aryan model. The brilliant young student, Biko, is literally destroyed by his European and Eurocentric teachers because he dares to uncover Herodotus, Aristotle, and others' words on the Greeks' depths to Egypt, the blackness of Egyptians, and so on. Both Osiris and Kemet are in great part novels about academia. Indeed, casting academics as revolutionary heroes, which might be refreshing to those brought up on a diet of David Lodge and Malcolm Bradbury. Uh, but there seems between the two, to me, to be a further shift, I feel like saying a further retreat. Whereas in Osiris Rising, the recovery of the ancient past is directly linked to a liberatory political project. In Kemet, it seems to be proposed that recovery of Egyptian roots will in itself offer liberation, psychological rather than political. The debts become more explicit in Eloquence of the Scribes. There, Amar sees Africa's present fragmentation, his favorite oft-repeated expression, as a consequence of a concealed, denied history. It has produced a situation, he says, in which each broken-off piece of African society has in time acquired a quasi-independent narrative of its own. He believes a single continental grand narrative must be rediscovered, renewed, as foundation for Renaissance. But it must be, as in its truest, oldest manifestations it was, a democratic narrative. The images of ancient Egypt, which Armour says must be recovered, are not of the pyramids, but the Ankh and the sphere, symbols of unity, without top or bottom, without hierarchy, portable ones that can travel, and which even if broken can be remade. 
Now, I think I'm going on longer than I expected. I misjudged time. So I, I perhaps should skip my intended discussion of the fourth figure, a very different figure, more uh, purely academic in some sense, uh, European rather than African-born Wim van Binsbergen. Uh, I will only say that his extraordinary uh, still evolving work in progress, much of which can be read on his voluminous and very active websites, is I think the most far-reaching, most ambitious, and although I have grounds for skepticism, one of the most intellectually substantial of all visions of history that could broadly be called Afrocentric. And his uh, agreements with and differences from Martin Bernal and his work are also, I think, a fascinating subject. The differences have tended to grow over time, as Martin will no doubt be aware. But I won't say much more substantive here uh, on him. Rather, I should move towards saying something more general in conclusion. For Nabudere and Abenga, it is the Eurocentrically created fragmentation of social scientific and humanistic knowledges, which is the great enemy, which must be fought and replaced with a truly holistic approach to knowledge, not, Nabudere insists, just inter or transdisciplinary. That doesn't go anything like far enough. One whose greatest modern exemplar was Diop, but who, for which the ultimate source and inspiration lies in ancient Egyptian thought systems. For Armour, the crippling se separation is not so much one among systems of thought, though he stresses that too, as it is spatial and temporal. The way in which we have been mistaught to see Africa's societies and their histories as multiple rather than one big thing. Van Binsbergen's vision is yet more capacious, a transcontinental, Afro-Eurasian, ultra-diffusionist model of knowledge production. They're all truly heroic intellectual constructs, just as is Martin Bernal's. I salute them, as I do his, for that boldness, breadth, iconoclasm. Yet I have also some very substantial misgivings, which include, in conclusion, I'd like, it has to be very much in shorthand to summarize. First, there are grave and wide-ranging evidential problems with the kind of cultural diffusionist historical models on which all these thinkers in their different ways depend. Quite simply, there remain vast gaps in our knowledge of ancient African history, not least because of the patchiness of archaeological investigation in so many areas and the fact that for the key region of the Nile Valley, the historical and archaeological research has been done largely by Egyptologists, perhaps predisposed to look for Egyptian influences on down the valley rather than assess Nubian, Sahelian and other cultures in their own right or in relation to sub-Saharan Africa. There has, it's true, been a recent gradual shift towards seeing Meroitic civilization, for instance, <clears throat> as an independent and truly African entity, rather than a mere offshoot of Egypt. We can, perhaps we should, increasingly shift focus from Egypt, never mind what color we think it to have been, to the Sudan. The rescue archaeology necessitated by the great Meroe Dam project 
has already yielded remarkable new finds, huge potential additions to our knowledge. But there and outside the Nile Valley too, much, almost everything, remains to be found. Not least in importance, though hardly a place where archaeologists can work for a while yet, is none other than Darfur. The reasons its ancient history will, for a time, remain mostly unknown are also the reasons why the cultural politics of our subject are so bitterly fraught. Still, we grope largely in the dark about the extent and nature of influences from ancient Egypt to the rest of Africa and vice versa. And there is little evidence, should I say so far, little evidence uh, supporting the idea fundamental to US Afrocentric mythography and to visions like Amas, that the continent's myriad societies, or indeed their guiding ideas, originated in long-distance population movements out of the Nile Valley. Similarly, the notion that Arab conquest produced massive destruction and disruption, an idea also crucial to some such theories, including Amas' belief, Armour's belief in eloquent scribes and griots carrying their emancipatory knowledges across the deserts, across the centuries. This is not substantially supported by available evidence. That last point relates closely to the present-day cultural-political overtones of these debates, something to which Martin Bernal has always been so keenly alert. We have, I think, for instance, to think about the conflicts and the identity politics of the modern Sudan in relation to these disputes about ancient history. What has the idea of Sudan, ancient and modern, meant, whether in terms of the idea of a cultural corridor between Egypt and sub-Saharan Africa, of Kush's supposed priority in some eyes over Egypt, and of modern antagonisms among Arab, Muslim, black, African, and other identities. Amar's work, and that of some others I've mentioned, as well as some yet more distinguished thinkers like Woishoyinka, uh, is, sorry, that of Woishoyinka, is unfortunately, disturbingly, suffused with a rage at Islam and a belief that its spread was entirely a matter of forced conversion. Arabs and Muslims are seen as imperialists, slavers and oppressors, past and present. A blanket hostility, little if any less sweeping, than that directed at European and Christian inheritances, or the much more often noted calumnies against Jews, sometimes found in overlapping Afrocentric circles. This anti-Arab black nationalism has found new strength and urgency, not least in some African-American circles, in the wake of the Darfur tragedy. The supremacist and racist elements in some currents of Arab nationalism and Islamism, found at their starkest in the Khartoum regime, naturally require attention and condemnation. But an ahistorical wildly homogenizing view of ancestral African culture, supposedly fragmented and suppressed by Arab invaders, is not a good response to those. 
a myth of African cultural unity may be politically enabling and positive, but not, I suspect, one which claims to derive that unity from Kemet, let alone one with such strong elements of racialized and sometimes indubitably racist thought.